This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Peripheral vascular disease. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Amputation is one of the oldest surgical procedures. It was first described by Roman medical writer Olus Celsus in the first century as a treatment for gangrene. In Portus, Rome, archaeologists even discovered the bones of an adult femur showing surgical signs of amputation dating back to the second century. Over time, it has also been used to treat tumors, traumas, deformities, and even used as punishment. Surgical technique for amputation has greatly evolved over the centuries. And fortunately, medical science has as well, providing us lots of new treatments to spare limbs from amputation. Which is why it may be striking that even in this modern era, amputation can still be used as punishment or still be used as ritualistic practice. For example, in southern Iran, convicted robbers often had their fingers, hands, or feet cut off as a deterrent to future crooks. In Japan, the Yakuza Mafia practices yubisumi, self-amputation of the proximal digits as an apology for violating the Yakuza Code. In the United States today, the majority of amputations are done to treat complications of vascular disease, such as from diabetes. The good news is that recent research shows the rates of amputation in diabetic patients is decreasing. However, the true rate of peripheral arterial disease is very difficult to assess since most patients are asymptomatic. But the CDC estimates that approximately 6.5 million Americans have peripheral arterial disease. Here to discuss the pathophysiology of peripheral arterial disease as well as the variety of treatment options, which thankfully no longer hinge on amputation, is one of Ohio State University's vascular surgery experts. I am pleased to introduce Assistant Professor of Vascular Surgery, Dr. Kate Pang. Kate, welcome to MedNet. Thanks, Jing Jing. Thanks, Kate. Now, is peripheral vascular disease the same thing as peripheral arterial disease, or is there some sort of difference? Yeah, I would say colloquially, um, they're pretty much interchangeable. When people talk about peripheral vascular disease or PVD, they usually mean peripheral arterial disease, PAD. Technically, of course, the artery is only half of the circulation of the leg, so PVD does also encompass, under its umbrella, venous disease, mm -hmm. um, but for all intensive purposes, they're pretty interchangeable. Perfect. Now, before we get started with today's talk, I wanted to let you know about an update on obtaining American Board of Internal Medicine Maintenance of Certification points. This season, brand new, you no longer need to take the pretest to get MOC points. You will still need to complete a post-test to obtain both CME credit and MOC points, which is available on our website at ccme.osu.edu. 
In related news, we have recently revamped our website and we're really excited for you all to see. You can find all 120 of our webcasts there, or if you prefer to consume your CME by podcast, you can also hear the audio only version of our program under MedNet 21 CME podcast. Now, without further ado, let's get started. Kate? Thanks again for having me here. I'm really excited to share a little bit of information about peripheral arterial disease with all of you. So let's jump right into it. Um, so here's the overview of what we'll talk about today. We'll, we'll first talk about what this means, and we'll talk about how this disease progresses, what kind of risk factors these patients have, um, the clinical presentations that they will, they will come to you with, um, and the different kind of therapy, um, therapeutic modalities. First, medical, and then second, surgical. And when we do surgeries, what kind of surgeries we do, and then what um, the outcomes of these surgeries are, what they hinge on, and then ultimately how we ultimately survey these patients after. So let's first start with definition. So, so what is peripheral vascular disease? And you know, for, again, for all intensive purposes, peripheral arterial disease. So um, it's essentially atherosclerosis of the arteries of the lower extremity. And it essentially comes from the accumulation and deposition of lipid and fibrous material between the layers of the arterial wall. Um, and so now that we're talking about arterial walls, let's talk about the actual anatomy and then how this progresses. So here um, is a pretty basic picture of the arteries of the lower extremity. So what you'll see at the very top, um, just before the bifurcation, is what would be the aorta. And then you'll see coming down on the right leg, as it goes through the groin, that is your femoral artery. And as um, the artery goes through the groin and the thigh, the artery actually splits into two. There's one major artery that goes through the thigh, and that's called the superficial femoral artery. There is actually what we call a backup artery that goes, um, branches off and goes towards the lateral aspect of the thigh, and that's called the profunda femoris. Um, the profunda femoris is actually very important to us as vascular surgeons because um, the superficial femoral artery is actually the most easily diseased vessel of the body. So um, usually when we you know, have patients that come in with SFA disease, what is keeping their leg perfused is actually that profunda femoris because that's what gives them all the collaterals. And then we'll move down more distally into the knee and that's when the artery becomes the popliteal artery and as it comes through the, through the calf, then it trifurcates. First, it goes uh, and becomes the anterior tibial artery going down the lateral aspect of the calf. And then you have your tibial perineal trunk, which then splits into the perineal and the posterior tibial artery um, at the mid-calf in this particular picture. And then, you know, if the patient has really healthy arteries, then the anterior tibial artery and the posterior tibial artery sort of form a collateral in the foot. And um, that's, that's, that's kind of the basic um, anatomy that we see in the, in the leg. And so essentially, you know, we, we talked a little bit about how the um, atherosclerosis forms within the layers um, of the arterial wall. So what happens is there is subintimal accumulation of lipid and fibrous material, and that causes bulging into the vessel and causes narrowing of the vessel lumen. And when you have narrowing of the vessel lumen, this will lead to eventual thrombosis um, or plaque rupture, kind of similar to what you'll see in patients who have coronary artery disease and you know, sustain a myocardial infarction. And then you can get distal embolic events. And um, you know, as you have poor perfusion of the distal muscle bellies, you'll start to have reduced skeletal muscle area and increased fat infiltration and development of sarcopenia. And so, you know, this is another depiction of kind of what we're talking about. You'll see on the, on the right side of that artery, you have a nice plane. It's nice artery, media, and adventitia, which are the layers of the artery. And then to the left side, you'll see that, you know, there's, there's some accumulation and there's some fat that's starting to be deposited within the, the layers between the intima and the media, and that becomes this really dense calcific plaque. And to the very right, you'll see that you know, there's clinical manifestation based on how narrow the, um, the artery becomes. And generally, you know, what we call you know, quote-unquote flow-limiting stenosis or lesion is when they're more than 50% narrowed. And so at that point, we start, starting, you know, we start seeing that patients have symptoms. 
And so now we'll talk about who are these patients and what are their risk factors. So essentially, you know, people who have bad peripheral artery disease are patients who have a bad heart, um, you know, bad carotid arteries. Essentially, all these um, atherosclerotic diseases are, you know, general throughout the body. And so the people we generally see are, you know, people who are older, 10% um, of adults older than 55 years old suffer peripheral arterial disease. Females seem to suffer this more than males, even though in, in our literature, admittedly, females are pretty underreported. Uh, people who smoke tobacco, people with hyperlipidemia, hypertension, um, bad diabetes. Um, interestingly, diabetes causes both macro and microvascular disease, uh, but it typically starts with micro, microvascular disease in the feet. Um, and then people with chronic kidney disease, mostly because their arteries get so calcified. And so what are their presentations? There is a wide spectrum of how these patients present. And it's um, important to know what, you know, at, at what point of that spectrum they are so we know how to appropriately intervene on them. So we'll first talk about the chronic clinical presentations. And so, you know, frequently I will see patients coming into clinic because, you know, their primary care providers performed a, you know, a thorough physical examination and they found out that they don't have any pulses in the feet. Um, so, you know, then they'll come to my clinic and, you know, luckily many of them are asymptomatic and will have great Doppler signals in their feet. And so what that tells us is most of these patients are actually asymptomatic. Three times, there are three times as many asymptomatic patients as symptomatic patients. And so what that means is that it's probably a single level disease when you, you know, if you think back on the, um, that anatomy picture, there's probably, you know, a narrow lesion at maybe one of those arteries. Um, so it's single level disease, and then there probably are development of collaterals that allow for appropriate or adequate perfusion to the foot where patients still don't have any, have any pain. So the next level is claudication. So claudico means to limp, um, and this means that patients will only have pain when they ambulate a certain distance. So it's a reproducible discomfort of a defined muscle group, and it's induced with exercise. And it's pretty consistent. You know, patients who have this will say, if I walk two blocks, I'll start to have calf pain. Or if I, you know, if I walk too fast for 10 minutes, I'll start to get calf pain. And classically, when you give the muscle some rest, the pain will subside. Um, and, you know, Usually the, the next question patients will ask in clinic is, well, what is my, my limb loss rate? You know, what's the chance that I'm going to get an amputation because of this problem? And so when patients are still at the claudication stage, the, the risk of limb loss per year is still less than 1% per year. So, you know, this is a really, really, this, this is the patient with that golden opportunity to modify risk factors and get them to a better place. Now, the next, the next one is, you know, is, uh, what we call critical limb-threatening ischemia, or CLTI. So those we put into two categories. One is rest pain, and the other is non-healing wounds. So rest pain means now, even without exercise, and you know, even without the myocytes needing increased oxygen for exercise, now they're having pain even with rest. So um, basically, that, that, that's the analogy that people kind of will understand um, a little better um, is that you know somebody who walks 10 minutes and starts to get chest pain versus people who are sitting there and start getting chest pain. So it's, it's akin to stable versus unstable angina for the feet. So people who have rest pain and people who have non-healing wounds are people who basically have critical limb ischemia. And, and you know, at this rate, your, your rate of risk, um, your risk of limb loss jumps from less than 1% to 25% per year. So um, very significant once it gets to this stage. And, you know, we, as vascular surgeons, we generally classify this, and um, the classification basically helps us decide how we manage these patients. So this is a Rutherford classification, and it goes from zero through six, zero being asymptomatic, um, one through three are within the realm of claudication from mild, moderate to severe. And when you have mild to moderate claudication, the, um, and of course, if you're asymptomatic, the management modality is completely medical. Severe claudication kind of gets us into a, um, what we would call lifestyle, lifestyle um, uh, 
uh, uh, lifestyle altering claudication. So people who, you know, male men who need to walk a lot and they start getting claudication at half a block, that's not really compatible with their livelihood. So at that point, we'll we will start to think about medical management versus revascularization. Um, and certainly for rest pain and minor tissue loss, um, we will definitely think about revascularization. For major tissue loss, which means extending above the transmetatarsal level, um, where even if we revascularize, there's no good tissue to heal, um, we would think about revascularization if we need to get the patient to heal from like a below knee amputation or above knee amputation or a primary amputation. And of course, you know, there's always the acute, more emergent um, limb ischemia. So acute pain is typically more embolic in pathophysiology. This is when patients show up and, you know, they have horrendous pain and they're not able to move their foot or they're not able to feel their foot. So that is a different category. It's not chronic. It's an acute category. And so we treat them in a, in a very different fashion. There's also stage associated with this. Stage one is they're having acute pain, the foot feels cool, but they have no motor sensory deficit. 2A is when they are starting to have some sensory loss, but they still have you know, mo no muscle weakness, they're able to dorsiflex, they're able to plantar flex. 2B is when there is sensation loss and weakness, and stage three is when the muscle loss, when the, um, the arterial insufficiency, the, the, when stage three is when there is such profound sensory loss and the muscles have been devoid of, of uh, blood flow for so long that now it's basically paralyzed. And at that point, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a point of no return. So when we do have patients who have peripheral artery disease, what is our diagnostic testing? So we'll focus mostly on the chronic aspect of um, peripheral artery disease. So the first thing we do, of course, is physical examination. Things that we would notice are hair loss. Is there a wound? Um, is there skin discoloration? Is there modeling? And then we'll palpate and see if there's, you know, if, if the skin feels cool. And next thing we do that's you know, very important is a pulse exam. So the, f the one thing that I do want to note is a pulse. If there's a pulse present, that means that when you put your finger on the skin, you can feel the pulse against your skin. If you cannot feel a pulse, then that's, and, and if you, but if you can find a Doppler signal, then that's called a signal, not a pulse. Just something that helps us differentiate between um, kind of how we describe the pulse exam. But essentially, we'll check a femoral pulse, we'll check for a popliteal pulse, we will check for a posterior tibial pulse behind the medial malleolus, and then we'll check for a dorsalis pedis pulse on the dorsum of the foot. Um, and then, of course, again, if there's no pulse, we'll check for a signal with a Doppler. And um, the level of the loss of pulse generally will correlate with physical exam. So what that means is if the patient has a femoral pulse, um, but the patient doesn't have a popliteal pulse, um, that usually means that the patient will claudicate at the calf. If the patient does not have a femoral pulse, then that probably means that the patient has, a, has disease in the iliac arteries, something more proximal, and generally they will say they claudicate in the buttock or in the thigh. So, um, you know, it, it, it usually correlates pretty well with that. The next thing we do is a very thorough neurologic examination. So we always ask them to dorsiflex and to plantar flex and then we check the sensation. You know, we usually check it on the dorsum of the foot, the plantar surface of the foot, and then certainly in acute situations, we'll always check the interdigital web space between the first and second toe. And so what if we don't have a pulse, or what if the pulse seems asymmetric or decreased? The first thing we will do is to check an ABI. So an ABI is an ankle brachial index. And um, it essentially is, you know, obtained by getting a blood pressure on the left arm and the right arm. And then we check a blood pressure cuff on the right leg and the left leg. And then we basically take the highest, the higher of the two um, brachial pressures. And then we take the leg blood pressure and we put it over the, the brachial pressure to see how much of that blood flow is getting down to the foot. Um, so essentially, 1 to 1.4 is normal. So what that means is if you have a blood pressure of 120 in your arm, 
were getting a blood pressure of 120 in the leg. Um, and then 0 0.9 to 1 means that it's reasonable. You probably have some disease, but it's not that bad. So let's say 120 blood pressure in the arm, maybe 110 in the leg. That's pretty reasonable, and they're pretty equal. Um, once you start getting to 0 0.8 to 0 0.9, um, you know, that's what we call mild peripheral artery disease, and you know, we want to do risk factor modification. So if the patient's smoking, tell them to stop smoking. Um, and moderate peripheral artery disease is when the ABI drops to about 0 0.5 to 0 0.9. And so that's, you know, for instance, if the blood pressure is 120 in the arm, and in the leg, I'm only getting a blood pressure of 70. You know, there's clearly a discrepancy there. Um, and generally, patients will start to have claudication symptoms at around 0 0.75 and below. Um, and if there's um, an ABI of less than 0 0.5, then that's what we categorize as severe peripheral artery disease. Um, and for both moderate and severe peripheral artery disease, we would recommend a referral to a specialist. Um, usually, at an ABI less than 0 0.4, we will start to see rest pain. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, an ABI of, like, let's say, over 1.4, what does that mean? So if you have a blood pressure in the arm of 120, and then you get a blood pressure of 200 in the leg, what does that mean? So honestly, you know, at that point, it's difficult to ascertain how the blood flow of the foot is. And the reason for that is because there is so much calcium on the arterial wall that it is now incompressible. And we can't tell really how much blood flow is going there. And so that ABI is really not very reliable. And I would still recommend a referral to a specialist at that point for further testing. So here's um, basically an example of what the ankle brachial index is. It's always a little easier to see the picture. Um, so you can see here there's a right arm and we're getting a blood pressure on the right arm using a Doppler. And then we'll move down to the leg and we individually will we'll repeat this for the posterior tibial artery and the dorsalis pedis artery. So we'll inflate the cuff and then we'll check to see when we get that return of flow. So, um, you know, the other tests that we use as an adjunct um, are arterial duplex. So arterial duplexes are really nice because there's different information that we can get from this. So there's a B mode and there's a Doppler. Um, here's a Doppler. Basically, what this shows us is you can see on the bottom of the screen a nice waveform. Um, this is a carotid artery, so not, not actually a peripheral artery a case, but you can see a nice waveform there. And then you can also look for velocity. And the velocity we use as an adjunct to tell us if there is a stenotic lesion. Um, the, the more narrow the artery is, the higher the velocity is through that lesion. It's, it's basically, you know, if you think back to medical school days, it's Bernoulli's, Bernoulli's equation. So um, the, the more narrow the, um, the artery, the higher that velocity is through that pipe. And then the B mode is basically where we get to look at how extensive the calcium is, if there's any intra-arterial um, thrombus or occlusive lesion. So we use this quite frequently. And then, you know, ultimately we can also get cross-sectional imaging. I will say generally most of us will get a CT angiogram if we are concerned about anything above the groin. So if we, you know, check for a femoral pulse and we can't really get a femoral pulse, then, you know, we would want to make sure there's nothing occlusive in the aorta and that there's nothing occlusive in the iliac arteries. Um, and, you know, generally if we do get a CT angiogram, anything that is infragenicular, so popliteal artery and below, those arteries are so small that um, CT scans are just not very reliable at assessing those arteries. And in fact, to further evaluate those arteries, it's better to do an ultrasound or to do a diagnostic angiogram, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And so now we've diagnosed the patient with, with peripheral artery disease, now what do we do? The first mainstay of therapy is always medical. Um, so again, risk factor modification. So we recommend antiplatelet therapy, so aspirin or Plavix, um, and lipid-lowering therapy. Even if their LDL is normal, we still recommend high-intensity statin. And the reason for that is because in addition to being a great medication for lowering LDL, um, statins have a great anti-inflammatory property, and they really stabilize plaque 
and help to avoid or prevent progression of disease. So I have patients who come into clinic all the time who say that they don't need to be on a statin because their LDL is okay. But in fact, we still really highly recommend um, patients to be on statins. Of course, management of their diabetes, hypertension therapy, smoking cessation, diet, and exercise. Um, we also recommend a supervised walking program, vasodilator therapy, and foot care. So antiplatelet therapy, again, um, long-term antiplatelet therapy has been demonstrated to reduce risk of future cardiovascular events. So that includes, um, you know, peripheral vascular events. Um, so either aspirin or Plavix are appropriate. And, you know, nowadays we'll actually add low-dose Xarelto. So PAD dosing Xarelto, 2.5 milligrams twice a day, has been shown to, um, you know, improve outcome for these patients. So, you know, in select patients, we will start them on that as well. Um, and again, we talked about the lipid-lowering agents, at least a moderate dose statin, irrespective of LDL cholesterol. Um, the heart protection study showed that there's 22% risk reduction in the first major vascular event with the use of, um, with the use of statins. And a retrospective study of statin therapy and critical limb threat ischemia, again, that's rest pain and wounds, that gives them lower mortality and major adverse limb event rate over a median of 380 days. So that's pretty significant. Glycemic control, our A1C goal is less than seven and it has been shown to improve cardiovascular outcome. And the thing that, you know, we also think about is it also improves wound healing. So if these patients ever do get to a point where they need surgery, then we really want their A1C to be well controlled. And as far as hypertension goes, you know, we don't have any specific um, antihypertensives that we recommend. Um, essentially, you know, the selection of therapy is consistent with the current guidelines um, based upon the epidemiology. Um, normal tension, um, you know, at, at one point in time, people were concerned that if patients are used to a higher blood pressure and the, maybe the leg is used to a higher blood pressure, if we make them normal tensive, does that actually decrease perfusion to the legs? And what we've actually found is that normal tension does not worsen claudication or functional status in patients. And in fact, we do recommend that their blood pressure be well controlled. Um, beta blockade, we, we usually see our patients on beta blockade. Um, I will say that's typically because, again, being a generalized vasculopath, um, they have concomitant coronary artery disease. And smoking cessation, we cannot stop, uh, we cannot emphasize enough about spot stopping smoking. And I fuss at my patients, probably every clinic, to stop smoking. Um, so, you know, I highly recommend varenicline, um, Vipropion, any nicotine replacement. We um, heavily recommend referral to smoking cessation programs. And we've seen that there's no increased cardiovascular event rates with pharmacotherapy. So, um, you know, major, major big push. Um, and, you know, then we also talked about a walking program. Patients always ask, well, what exactly is the walking program? Can I do it on my own? Um, you know, supervised is preferred, um, and, you know, we actually do have a supervised walking program at OSU that we offer out at our Upper Arlington Clinic. But um, essentially, these walking programs are progressive and individually prescribed. And the aim is to accumulate 30 minutes of aerobic activity three times a week for at least three months. And you want to walk to um, near maximal claudication pain. You don't want to do too much because then you'll never want to go back. But you do want to exercise that muscle. And um, what, I, what I tell my patients is when the muscle is feeling pain, that messages your brain to build the collaterals. And without, without you know, experiencing that pain, you're not gonna build collaterals. So essentially it's no pain, no gain. You can do treadmill or walking. Um, if there are, you know, any other prohibit, you know, any, anything that prohibits patients from being able to walk, like joint issues, you can also do resistance training as an alternative modality. So you can do swimming, you can do anything that really helps to use those muscles. Um, and, you know, patients who can't do supervised programs, um, you know, I usually tell them, you know, walk a block, see if you can walk another half a block and, you know, repeat that until you feel like you're not getting pain anymore with the addition of half a block and then add another half a block. 
And um, the other thing that you know we add as an adjunct is a vasodilator or celastazole, um, otherwise also known as pletel. So these are phosphodiesterase inhibitors, and they suppress platelet aggregation. They're also direct arterial vasodilators, and um, you know it's not it's not the the magic bullet. You know it doesn't fix everything, but um, several meta-analyses have shown significantly greater increases in maximal walking distance and pain-free walking distance with the use of celastazole. So especially if patients are willing to do a walking program, then this is a great adjunct to help them be able to walk longer. Um, benefits are noted at four weeks after initiation of therapy though, so you do have to tell them you have to commit for a little bit. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not an immediate um, fix. And it's safe to use concomitantly with dual antiplatelet therapy without increase in bleeding time. Um, there are side effects, though. Um, I find that they are pretty rare, but there are side effects that can happen. So those include headaches, loose stools, diarrhea, dizziness, and palpitations. Um, and this is contraindicated in severe heart failure. So now we've talked about all these medical things that we can do for them. What if those don't work or if the patient has such critical limb ischemia that we have to actually do something about it surgically? So again, these are the indications. Lifestyle limiting claudication, which is that severe PAD we talked about. Rest pain, non-healing wound, and again, in the acute setting, acute limb ischemia. So we'll talk about um, you know, some of these endovascular modalities. Um, essentially, you know, we'll do an angiography. Angiography essentially means that we place an IV in the artery, usually on the opposite leg that's bothering them. And we'll put an IV in there, we'll put a wire and catheter, park it in the aorta, and then we will basically shoot a picture from that catheter using contrast that helps us delineate the artery and the vasculature of the entire leg. The nice thing about that is that if we do find a lesion, then we can go ahead and treat it there and then. So what are these therapeutic options? There's balloon angioplasty, which is when we put a balloon within the lumen of the artery and then we inflate it um, so that we can basically break open that lesion. Um, there's drug-coated balloon angioplasty, which is basically when we have um, like paclitaxel or, you know, in the past we used to use serolimus, but basically things that minimize you know, an inflammation and re-stenosis. And we'll, we, we have balloons that have that drug coated on its outer wall already so that when we inflate that balloon, it coats the intima of the artery with that, with that drug. And theoretically, it's supposed to minimize re-stenosis rates. And then of course, we can also do stents. So what you can see here on the right upper corner is there is a, um, a stent mounted on a balloon that is getting ready to be deployed. You can see all those yucky um, atherosclerotic plaque in that artery. And then um, on the right bottom corner, you see that the balloon has been opened, the stent is being deployed, and I wish every single time the, um, the arterial wall flattened out like that, but that's basically what we're trying to achieve. And then after surgery, uh, to try and minimize Reproliferation and re-stenosis within the stent, we will recommend um, antiplatelet therapy, um, aspirin and then Plavix, and sometimes in, you know, in certain situations, we'll do antithrombotic therapy instead of dual antiplatelet therapy. So, you know, aspirin and Azarelto, Plavix and Azarelto, but we really try to avoid doing triple anticoagulation therapy. Um, you know, this is actually something that is um, recent in the vascular surgery literature, but we are starting to actually go farther away from doing dual antiplatelet therapy and do Plavix on its own. So more to come from, from, from our side of the world about that in the future. So here on our first video, you can see a, an angiogram um, of um, my own patient. Um, you can actually see here, I, I was actually saying earlier that, uh, that uh, we usually stick the opposite groin, but here ob obviously we stuck the, the same side of the groin. And what you can see here is that there is that catheter, which is the shepherd's hook at the top of the screen. It is parked in the aorta, and as you see the angiogram, the um, contrast is very sluggish through the iliac artery, and in fact, there is no more flow in the distal iliac artery you do see that there is flow that reconstitutes in the femoral artery in the groin, and that's by way of all those teeny collaterals that you can see around the artery. 
Um, so this is, this is basically occlusion that we were able to recanalize with wires and catheters. And in this next video, you'll see that we have successfully um, ballooned the inside of the artery. There is a stent that's very hard to see, but there is a stent in there. And we have repeated an angiogram, and now there's great flow through the entire artery. Um, and that's a successful procedure and what we hope to see every time. So what if angiograms don't work, or what if there are extensive lesions? Then we'll go ahead and perform a surgical bypass. Um, you know, surgical bypasses are very high-risk surgeries, so there are contraindications to these. Obviously, if the patient has limited functional capacity and they don't really walk or use the limb, if there are um, prohibitive medical risk, that would not allow us to perform this safely. So people with really bad hearts, really bad lungs, um, we generally are willing to perform angiograms, but, you know, they, but they're not candidates for surgical bypasses. And of course, patients who have a non-salvageable extremity. So how exactly do we form our surgical bypasses? Um, you know, I won't get into the nitty-gritty of things. There's a lot of different bypasses that we perform, but essentially we have to have good target selection. Um, so you have to have a good inflow vessel, and then you have to have a good outflow vessel. So you have to have good artery to sew the first part of the bypass onto, and then you have to have a good receiving artery on the other end to sew the distal part of the bypass onto. Um, there's also the consideration of conduits. So what do we use to do the bypass? Any time that we do a bypass, we always want to use vein whenever possible. Um, it's got better patency overall. Um, there is less risk for infection. But of course, you know, patients don't always have great vein to use. So then if that's the case, we have to then move on to a prosthetic. Um, and then overall patency depends on the level of the bypass. So infrainguinal versus infragenicolate, any single time we have to go down to the tibial vessels, that bypass patency is going to be lower than if we only had to go to the popliteal artery. And then conduit, as aforementioned, veins always do better than prosthetics. Now, after we've done all these procedures, how do we survey the patients? So, you know, we see the patients pretty frequently after their procedures. We'll perform a clinical examination, um, make sure that if they had a pulse, that they still have a pulse. If they have a Doppler signal, that they still have the Doppler signal. If they have a wound, then that hopefully that wound is slowly starting to heal. Um, and we'll get a quantitative study. So we'll always get a post-procedure ankle brachial index and a graft duplex if we perform the bypass. So that, you know, so that we can look at where the proximal anastomosis is, where we connected the bypass. Then we can look at the distal anastomosis, where we connected the bypass, you know, wherever distally, and then make sure that there's no re-narrowing of any of that, uh, of that part of the bypass. So we'll do that at the one month mark, three month mark, and then six months thereafter. And basically, you know, we'll see the patient lifelong and make sure that restenosis doesn't happen. Um, and if there are any concerns on our graft duplex where, you know, again, if a, if a velocity seems really high or the velocity through the graft seems really, really low or the waveforms have changed or there's a new wound that's not healing, then we are pretty quick to bring the patient back to do an angiogram and see if we have to balloon any part of the bypass so that we can keep it open as long as we can. Thanks. Great, thanks Kate. So just to follow up a little bit on the procedure side, is restenosis a common thing? Like how often are you seeing that? Yeah, so restenosis is a pretty common thing. You know, I, I usually counsel patients when we do bypasses and certainly balloon angioplasties that um, you know, usually this is not, it doesn't always last forever. Mm -hmm. um, there are high rates of Restenosis, especially, um, you know, down the years, you know, I, I will say within the first year, it's probably because of maybe technical error or mm -hmm. maybe because the patient is procoagulable. Um, but, you know, at two years, five years, your body just wants to make this scar and it just wants to form this new intima within the bypass that mm -hmm. um, it makes it very difficult for it to stay open long term. Um, 
you know, for example, I will say the long-term patency for a FEMPOP bypass, going from the groin to the knee, mm -hmm. above the knee, um, is probably about 70 to 80 percent. Um, and a patency for a bypass that goes down to the tibial artery, you know, if, it's, if you use a vein, it's probably, maybe it's about 50 to 60. And if you use um, a, a graft, um, it's sometimes as bad as like 30 to 40, depending on mm. how bad the, the vessels are. So that's why surveillance is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And there are signs that we use to take them back to surgery to see if we can investigate an angioplasty as much as possible. Got it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now talking about these patients a little bit more, I would say that I'm really shocked. Why are women at higher risk than men when men are the ones with all the risk factors? Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, and, and I think that, you know, what that means is that there is some kind of disproportionate, you know, um, uh, risk factor that we don't know. Well, there's, that what that means is that there's a risk factor that disproportionately affects women more than men that we just don't have a handle on. Um, a big part of what causes peripheral arterial disease is inflammation. And, um, you know, we suspect that maybe there's just more inflammation that happens in women more than men, and that therefore causes them to have more progression of peripheral vascular disease. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know if hormonally that's a, you know, that, that plays an, a part into it at all. Um, but, you know, I don't have a super great answer for it, mm -hmm. but, you know, suffice it to say, women are just affected more than men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be an interesting line of research to see if yeah. it is hormonal or, or, and if so, if there's anything that could alter right. the risk factor. Right. Um, now, also, you know, you were saying that the calcified arteries, ABI above 1.4 is also a concern. And if, if anything, it seems like it might be more of a concern than a low ABI because you're recommending that those patients go directly to the specialist. Mm -hmm. What kind of um, what kind of thing are you looking for? Does it cause the same type of symptoms, or is it a different pathology? Um, yeah, I mean they cause different dif they, they cause similar symptoms. I would mm -hmm. say you know I mean I, I have patients who come in all the time who have. Um, you know, ABIs of non-compressible, they can't even give me a number because the blood pressure is over 255 and that's our cutoff. Um, and you look at the actual waveform and it's a beautiful triphasic waveform. It's just, unfortunately, their arteries are just lined with calcium. Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that they have um, worse disease or they present any differently, but I would say that, you know, it certainly, if we ever have to take them and do a bypass, it makes our lives a little harder mm -hmm. because it's very hard to, to, to suture onto to calcified arteries. I see, okay. Mm -hmm. And so does that mean those people are more likely to have an amputation? Um, you know, um, yes and no. You know, they're more challenging, but we still do everything we can to try to do, you know, do whatever intervention mm -hmm. we can offer them. Sure. So mm -hmm. the treatment, it sounds like, would be the same no matter if it's yeah. uh, low or high ABI, but it just mm -hmm. um, exactly. requires more nuance. Exactly. I would say the other thing that, you know, um, makes us a little kind of globally looking at these patients is when they have, you know, generalized calcinosis of the peripheral arteries in the leg, it always makes us, you know, have a higher threshold of um, kind of looking into their heart because then mm. we assume that their coronaries are pretty calcified. Mm -hmm. And so I guess what I should say is that we'd have a lower threshold to have a cardiologist evaluate them and, mm -hmm. you know, possibly even perform a cath. Mm. Okay. And then what exactly does foot care mean for these patients? What should I tell my patients to do more specifically? Yeah. So kind of basic things, um, you know, I, I usually tell these folks not to walk around barefoot, mm -hmm. you know, um, I tell them, you know, wear socks and comfortable shoes that won't rub on their feet and cause a wound. Unfortunately, so many of these patients have diabetic neuropathy, so they can't really feel if there's a wound. And um, so many times we see these patients come in and now the wound has progressed and now we're really behind the eight ball. So I also tell them, inspect your foot every day. Look between the toes. Make mm -hmm. sure that, you know, visually you're not seeing a wound. Um, I usually tell them to not go and get pedicures. And if there are nails that need a little more attention and, the, you know, toenails mm -hmm. that need more attention, go to a podiatrist and have them properly manage the, manage the toes. And then finally, you know, especially in the cold winter months, don't let the skin get dry. Don't mm -hmm. let it get cracked. 
put lotion on it and just, mm -hmm. you know, I tell, I tell my patients to treat the feet like gold. You know, once you start to get a wound, then it makes it so difficult mm -hmm. um, to heal the wound. Okay. And what is the point where you do start adding medications for these patients? Is it right away on, upon diagnosis or do you base it upon what symptoms they have or their AVI results? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're again, we're very liberal with the antiplatelet therapy and the statin therapy. So, you know, once they're diagnosed with peripheral artery disease, I, I put them on, on, mm -hmm. on, on both of these on both of these medications. Um, you know, for the Celastazole, I put my clodicants on mm -hmm. Celastazole, so once they start to have symptoms, then we'll start that. Um, and then, you know, everything else, like, you know, stopping smoking and eating healthy and, mm -hmm. um, you know, walking, all those are, those are all comers, you and I included. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we should all be doing that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Now, I, a question I often get from patients is, what about supplements? Mm -hmm. Is um, B12 helpful for vascular disease? Um, B, B12? Or Sorry, um, B3. B3, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I get that question sometimes too, and I will say that, you know, things that help to decrease risk factors, like, you know, help to minimize your cholesterol levels, you know, those aren't going to hurt. So, you know, go ahead and, you know, take them. And I don't think that those are going to have an adverse effect. Mm -hmm. And then another pharmacotherapy question, you know, I know you said you don't have a preference in terms of antihypertensives, but is there any advantage to something like a calcium channel blocker to help relax the arteries? You know, um, not, I mean, you know, not, not really. I think that whatever blood pressure regimen is, you know, the, the standard of care, you know, mm -hmm. for that particular demographic or the particular, um, you know, ethnicity, I think is, is basically what we abide by. Okay. And then um, I know you said for surgery, you surveil people very closely, mm -hmm. but what about for medical therapy? Is there any reason to do like a repeat ABI, for example? Yeah, that's a really great question. I do. Um, so if patients are asymptomatic, generally we'll do the screening ABI and, you know, we put them immediately on some of these, you know, risk fact, um, uh, risk modifying agents, and then um, basically a clinical um, follow-up. Mm -hmm. For patients who have claudication, um, I will probably get ABIs about every six months. Okay, and, and what are you, with them. I'm curious, what are you looking for? Are you looking, can ABIs improve? Yeah, ABIs can absolutely improve. I've definitely seen ABIs improve. I mean, not dramatically. You're not mm -hmm. going to go from 0.4 to 1, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I've, you know, at least what we want to see is at least stability and okay. not, not um, you know, worsening of mm -hmm. ABIs. And just a kind of technical question on, on ABIs. Mm -hmm. Is that at rest, these numbers that you're reporting, like the 0.75 for symptomatic patients, this is all at rest. You don't need to do an exercise ABI. Yeah, so these are at rest. However, if we do have a patient that has a really great story for it, but their ABI is 0.9, mm -hmm. I will actually send them for an exercise ABI. Okay. Where they show up, they'll get the baseline ABI 0.9, uh -huh. and then we will exercise them on a treadmill for about two minutes or three minutes or whenever they start to experience symptoms, uh -huh. and then we'll stop and we'll repeat the ABI and see if there's been a drop. And frequently, you know, if it really is truly claudication, we will see that the ABI will drop by, you know, 0.9 to 0 0.7, 0 0.9 to 0.5. So it's it's actually it helps to unmask underlying lesions. Got it. Mm -hmm. And is that the only reason you would do an exercise ABI, or are there other indications for that? Um, generally, that's usually the only reason I would do it. Uh -huh. You know, um, because if patients are having symptoms and you know the mm -hmm. ABI is consistent with it, then mm -hmm. we don't necessarily have to you know push them to do exercise ABIs. Got it. Mm -hmm. Now, I recently had a patient, you know, like in their 50s, female, former smoker, diabetic patient who was complaining of acute leg pain in the calf for about two weeks and mm -hmm. um, you know at first I was thinking oh is this a DVT or something she sure. had just been on a car ride for eight hours yeah. but there was really no swelling and the venous Doppler was normal mm -hmm. well it turned out she had I mean she did have kind of decreased pulses in that foot but mm -hmm. it was still palpable so you know, vast, like peripheral arterial disease wasn't really on my mind because she sure. had never really reported claudication or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that she did indeed have peripheral arterial disease. So I'm curious, how often is it that these symptoms come on acutely versus more insidiously? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting um, situation because we usually do see them kind of come on insidiously. Mm -hmm. um, I would say any time a patient says she has constant pain mm -hmm. when she previously did not, mm -hmm. um, I mean, any kind of constant pain worries me for an acute pathology. Okay. So you worry about things like, you know, if this patient had a underlying lesion mm -hmm. that was becoming stenotic, and then now she has in situ thrombosis, which mm -hmm. means that now there's like a platelet plug that formed within that mm -hmm. lesion, that can certainly give them acute pain when they previously didn't. Or patients who are claudicants who had in situ thrombosis who now have acute pain. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that definitely, um, you know, that definitely makes the antennas on my, on my, on my head go up mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Um, but generally I would say it's a little more insidious. It's usually like, oh, I'm starting to notice pain when I walk whatever mm -hmm. many distance. Okay, mm -hmm. and if you do see somebody with kind of an acute thrombosis, is the treatment pretty much the same or does something need to be done more acutely to open that up? Yeah, so if it's truly acute and they're having you know, acute pain, the foot is cool, or, and certainly if they have motor sensory deficits, mm -hmm. um, I mean, they go straight to the ER and then mm -hmm. we actually would start them on a, um, like a heparin bolus and infusion, mm -hmm. get them very anticoagulated, and depending on how they look, um, we'll take them emergently to the OR mm -hmm. for revascularization. Mm -hmm. and, and you know what? That's exactly what happened with my patient. She did go to the ER and um, get revascular, get uh, oh, hospitalized and revascularized. Wow. That, well, I'm glad that. she went to the um, ER. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for coming. It is so helpful to go through this step-by-step -step approach with um, peripheral arterial disease. And I really like the way that you kind of went through, you know, this is the risk factor modification. This is the medical treatment. This is kind of the next step in terms of procedural treatments if the medical treatments are not successful. So thank you so much for going through all of that with us. We're going to finish up today's program with one final key point. Kate? Yeah, so, um, you know, thank you again for giving me this opportunity to talk about this. You know, ultimately, the, the important thing is that peripheral artery disease is a disease of spectrum. Um, and the most important thing that I want to kind of emphasize is that it is all about prevention, prevention, prevention. So, um, you know, being, um, you know, being healthy, eating healthy, being, being active, um, you know, stopping smoking, and then once PAD is diagnosed, um, you know, being on the appropriate antiplatelet therapy, statin therapy, and then continuing to follow up and, you know, be examined to make sure things are not worsening um, is the most important thing. Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions about today's program, you can send those to us directly on the webcast viewer or by visiting our website at ccme.osu.edu. Next week, we will be discussing women in medicine with doctors Maya Iyer and Arwa Shana'a. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.